You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, Guys, I want to start our time together uh, by introducing you to uh, two weird British people. Uh, Their names are Tim Noble and Sue Webster. And Tim and Sue have been working for decades, primarily as sculpture artists. So they form these really amazing artistic expressions in three-dimensional shapes and forms. And over the last 15 to 20 years, they've gained worldwide notoriety because of their most recent series. It's called the Shadow Series. And there's one thing that sticks out about the Shadow Series right away. It's made entirely of trash, garbage. So Tim and Sue walked the streets of London, and together they collected trash that they then repurposed into their artistic work. And each part of the series is made up of heaps of trash. And at first, you hear that, and you're like, oh, they're those kind of artists, right? Postmodern and kind of weird, and, but it's actually amazingly provocative and powerful. And so I wanted to share with you guys a couple of these images so you can see the power of these things. So the Shadow series, it's set up with a sequence of rooms. You enter the first room, and you see this image. You may have a tough time seeing it in the back, but you guys glimpse some of the stuff that's there? Coke cans, aerosol cans, you've got some beer cans, it looks like, and then it's all shot through with what looks to be bullet holes or BB holes or that sort of thing. So you walk into the room, you're like, that is a heap of garbage, right? That is useless. But then look what happens a few moments later when they shine a spotlight through it. All of a sudden, in the background of this image is the skyline of Manhattan. This heap of garbage is actually projecting this amazingly beautiful picture. And you can see, actually, right there, the date that they were hoping to indicate that this image was taking place. Those are the Twin Towers. actually made this image right after 9-11. And the hope was that it could be a reminder of what can come from the trash heaps of violence and rubble in our world. Beautiful, beautiful, right? I've got one more image. So you leave that room, you go into the next room, and you see this. And you're like, I don't understand what's going on, right? Metal pieces of wood, kind of random wire holding things together. You don't really know what's going on. And then they shine a light, and this happens. The outline of a human, a really like detailed and striking person here. Suddenly, all of that garbage is transformed into a beautiful human image. And the Shadow Series has dozens of pieces just like this. You can go online, you can look them up if you feel like it. But this morning, I think it's worth examining what Tim and Sue are teaching us to do with this sort of artistic expression. They're teaching us first to expand our vision. See, they know when you walk into the shadow series, you see garbage and you're like, that's useless, hopeless, lifeless. There's nothing worthwhile there. That's why we threw it out in the first place, right? They know that we carry those assumptions into the room in their shadow series. But then, in a moment of surprise, they shine a light through it. And all of that stuff that we thought was beyond hope, what we thought was lifeless, is actually projecting profound beauty and goodness onto the wall. And so they're teaching us to expand our vision. When you see what looks like lifelessness and hopelessness in the world, there's actually amazing potential there. But second, they're teaching us to grow in our expectations. So not just expand our vision to see things differently, but also grow in our expectations of what can happen. See, as you keep moving through each of these trash heaps, you start to assume that something good is going to come. Every time you move through another one of these exhibits, you're like, oh, man, they're going to do something amazing with all this garbage, right? The first one, I was like, that's just garbage. But by the fifth or sixth one, you're like, this is going to be incredible. Your expectations grow. 
because you've now seen what light can do in the middle of the mess. We're continuing in a teaching series here at Midtown called What's Next? Uh, this series we started following Easter. And Easter, we got to celebrate the amazing power of Christ's resurrection. But we also are now remembering in this series that the resurrection is actually the beginning of a story, not the end of a story. That it sparks a revolution of Jesus breaking into the world and bringing redemption and restoration. And we see all sorts of images of that redemption and restoration in the book of Acts. And today, we're going to see that God is doing his own version of the shadow series all over the world. The providence of the Holy Spirit in our lives gives us an expanded vision of reality. It expands our vision of things that we're looking at. See, so often the world feels lifeless and broken and without hope. It feels like piles of trash oftentimes. But suddenly, because of what the light of Christ has done in our world and in our lives, our vision of the world expands. We no longer see trash. Instead, we only see treasure that the light is waiting to illuminate. And then, because our vision is expanded, our expectations of what God can do grow. Because we know what God has done and is doing. We start to expect powerful redemption and restoration to burst forth into our lives and into the world at any point. And so in today's passage, we're going to see the Holy Spirit does both of these things. We see the Holy Spirit expands our vision through the messengers and the man in this story that we're going to read. And then we're going to see that the Holy Spirit grows our expectations through the miracle and through the message. Expands our vision through the messengers and the man and grows our expectations through the miracle and the message. Friends, if you have a Bible, open it with me uh, to the book of Acts. This is the fifth book in your New Testament. If you're flipping there, uh, we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 3 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. The words are going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along with the words there. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, at three o'clock in the afternoon. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate, so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked for alms. And Peter looked intently at him, as did John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We arrive at this story walking with Peter and John after the most exciting and groundbreaking days of their lives. We learn a little bit about these days in Acts 1 and 2 just as a refresher. They encountered and spent time with the resurrected Jesus. The rabbi that they followed for years, who was crucified and brutally murdered, they hung out with him for 40 days in his resurrected body. They ate meals with him. They drank with him. They learned from him. They fished with him, which is alone enough to change someone's life, right? This person who died is resurrected. I spent weeks with him. But that's just the beginning of how things changed for them. 
It didn't stop there. The living Jesus then tells them that his life-giving presence is going to inhabit them. That they don't have to just deal with Jesus as a separate physical person. That they can actually receive the spirit of Jesus in themselves and experience God's life-giving power in and through them. And sure enough, that happens. Gathered together, there's a group of Jesus' followers who experience the profound arrival of what we as Christians call the Holy Spirit, the living, life-giving presence of God in their midst. It rushes in them like a powerful wind. And then immediately afterward, they start doing things that they never would have done before. They start speaking in languages that they didn't understand, didn't know beforehand. They start preaching messages they had never preached. They see thousands of people come together to form a new community that couldn't and never would have come together otherwise. These have been some of the most rapturous and powerful spiritual experiences that anyone could ever have. Peter and John don't need to get high. They're high on the Holy Spirit, y'all. It's a cheesy pastor joke, but it still works. Forgive me. And now, after all of those life-changing experiences, all of these rapturous emotional experiences, what comes next in chapter 3? They are sent directly into the real world of real people. That's what happens. It's not an accident that as soon as Peter and John get caught up in the presence and power of God in chapters 1 and 2, they are sent out to bless and love their neighbors in chapter 3. There's no break in the narrative. See, those remarkable moments they had with Jesus and the Spirit expanded their vision for what God was doing in the real world and sent them out like a rocket to that world. They were to proclaim and embody what Jesus had done and is doing to others. They weren't just to linger in Acts 1 and 2. You guys, the religious experiences and encounters that happen in and around the church, as amazing and powerful as they are, they're supposed to expand our vision of what God is doing out there beyond these walls. That's why we receive those experiences, to remind us of who God is so that we can proclaim God to the world. When we read and hear about healing in the scriptures, we read about that so that we can participate in healing in the world. When we sing songs of, about God being a loving and gracious and just God, we sing those so that we can practice love and grace and justice in the world. We sit with Jesus in here so that we can walk with Jesus out there. That's the point. And the truth is that sometimes in the church we can forget that. Sometimes in the church we become people who love to linger in Acts 1 and 2 who love to linger in the God experiences that we have, who love to spend time singing songs like this and feeling rapturously, emotionally great here, and then we leave and fail to proclaim that to anyone else. We fail to bring God's life-giving presence in the world around us. This has happened in the West for centuries. The result is a Christian subculture that often focuses on internal spectacle, builds some great experience for people here. And then we start to define the work of God based upon only what happens in here. We say that the Spirit is at work because of the excellence of our religious productions. We say the Spirit is at work because of the size and scope of our gatherings. We say the Spirit is at work because of particular emotional feelings that we carry. But those are the wrong categories. That doesn't mean, by the way, that those are necessarily bad things. Good teaching, good singing, good. Big gatherings, not inherently bad. And even good feelings, not inherently bad. We just need to remember that an authentic experience of the Holy Spirit is found not in the excellence of the religious things we do, but in the sort of people that we become in the world out there. That's the measure that the Holy Spirit is at work in us and through us. Like Peter and John, the Spirit expands our vision beyond ourselves and beyond our personal religious experience. That's actually why Jesus reminds us that the whole of following God, the whole life of discipling him is loving God and loving others. He sees those things as intertwined. 
If you fail to love others, then you fail to love God. That's what Jesus seems to be indicating. The work of the Holy Spirit is always connected to the evidence of love for our neighbor. The work of the Holy Spirit is always connected to evidence of love for our neighbor. And so we need to be the sort of people who ask different questions, who ask ourselves pertinently where the Holy Spirit is at work through asking questions like this. Has your religious experience shot you like a rocket to your neighbors in need? Has your religious experience shot you like a rocket to your neighbors in need? Have you started to use the gifts that God has given you to participate in bringing life and love to others? Is the fruit of the Spirit, what's funny is the New Testament tells us exactly what the Holy Spirit's going to look like. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Are those traits being emanated from your life in conversations and interactions with others? That's how you know the Spirit's at work. The church and all of its religious activity never exists for its own sake. We're not here to build up an institution or to promote a particular brand of Christianity. The church only ever exists for the mission of God. And the mission of God is redemption and restoration of all things. All people, all things in creation. That's the expanded vision that Peter and John have been caught up in, and that's what sends them out that expanded vision keeps going with them. It's not just about them as messengers. It's also uh, communicated to the man that they encounter here. So Peter and John, they're on their way to afternoon prayer in the temple. And that was a common practice in their day. For the devout Jewish believer, there were special hours of prayer, at 9 a.m., at noon, and at 3 p.m. And they really held closely to the, the space of the temple. It was really important for them to pray in that space. So at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, people are flooding to the temple. Hundreds of people. And so amidst the crowds, Peter and John approach what the text calls the beautiful gate, which is kind of a funny name that strikes us, right? Oh, the beautiful gate. Well, there was actually a different name for it back then. It was called the Nicanor Gate, most scholars think. And it was the eastern entrance to the temple. And the Nicanor Gate was known for its splendor and its beauty. That's why it's termed the beautiful gate here. There was a, a Jewish scholar named Josephus who describes this gate. He says it was 50 cubits tall, which means about 75 feet it's about six stories tall, this massive gate going into the temple. It was made of Corinthian bronze, which was a highly valuable metal alloy at that time. And Josephus says that it was adorned in a costly manner, as having much rich plates of gold and silver. In other words, this gate that they're approaching, it's a great feat of religious architecture. It was smooth and polished and impressive. It's the sort of thing that would catch your eye if you were walking by, the sort of amazing religious artifact that religious people really like to brag about. It's that church building that you really want to invite people to go see. It's that worship band that you just can't get enough of. It's that preacher who's incredible that you just need to hear. But the story wants us to notice a striking contrast at this gate. Because just outside the gate, just outside the temple, at the foot of this marvelous religious attraction, sits a pitiful paralytic. For decades, he had been brought to the precipice of this religious institution, all the while being overlooked and marginalized by the people who went through the gate. And the irony is supposed to strike us as readers. Imagine, if every one of us walked into church today, there was somebody begging there, we all walked by them, ignored them, and then moved on with our day afterward. That's what Luke wants us to picture. He wants us to see a man who, in his time, is a social and religious outsider. That's what it meant to be a paralytic in the first century. It was one of the lowest places you could inhabit in society. 
because he wasn't able to work or support himself. He was at the mercy of other people. And while Jewish piety did say it's good to give alms to the poor, they also often undermined that by assuming at times that people who had those sorts of disabilities had done something wrong to warrant them, some sin in their life or some sin in their parents' life. They're actually getting what they deserved. Uh, in Greco-Roman society, it was the same thing. If you had something like this, you had offended the gods, and now they were inflicting pain upon you. And that seems a little inhumane to us when we say it out loud, right, how the ancient people talked about disabilities. But the truth is we often think similar things in our heads and our hearts when we really examine our motivations, when we really examine the way that we respond to people around us. Think about it. How often do we make assumptions about why someone is in the condition they're in? Well, they must have done something wrong. They brought this upon themselves. How often do we see the beggar or the person in need and reduce them down, see them as less than, see them as somehow less than human? How often do we justify our indifference towards them? Because we have somewhere to be or because really, if I help them, they'll just use it for wrong purposes. We always justify our ignorance of them. And so we, too, live in a society that views these same folks as outsiders, as less than, all the time. So daily, this man sits outside the temple gate, and daily, hundreds of people walking by him. Hundreds of people dehumanizing him. They're avoiding eye contact. They're walking by on the other side of the gate. They're scoffing at him. And maybe they throw a few coins his way out of pity, but not out of love, compassion. Because these people only saw a heap of trash. That's what they saw there. Because their vision of God's activity was too small. And that sort of dehumanizing vision is infectious. It starts to infect the beggar's view of himself and the world as well. The text says that he's begging for money. What is money going to do for a beggar in this situation? It's going to help him get by to the next day where he has to beg again. That's what money's going to do for him. He is living with the vision that says that, well, this is just my condition. This is the state of things. Healing is not part of his expectation. Being freed from this brokenness is not part of his expectation. So he's just trying to get by to continue to suffer in the next day. His vision is small because he's been given a small vision by the world around him. And these religious people certainly haven't figured it out. They don't have a big enough vision. They keep walking right by me. No healing can come to him, he thinks. All he knows is a life defined by brokenness and a beaten up body. All he knows is the experience of feeling less than these religious people. All he knows is indifference to his condition. And so he's reaching out his hands. He's begging for anything that can just keep him moving through this miserable life. But then something unique happens. Peter and John don't just keep going with the flood of people to their religious activity. Why? Because they've got an expanded vision. They know that the Holy Spirit is at work bringing redemption and restoration in all things. So rather than continuing on, rather than getting caught up in all the glory and spectacle of their amazing religion, they're willing to be interrupted, even by the outsider. Because they know that God is at work, not in the loud, not in the great shows, not in the beautiful gate, but in the quiet, in the unassuming, in the overlooked, in the humble. That's where God's presence is bursting forth to bring life. There's a great quote from a guy named Jean-Pierre de Cassade in his book, The Sacrament of the Present Moment. He says this, God is forever available, forever being received, not in pomp or glory or radiance, but in infirmity. In paralysis. 
in foolishness, in nothingness. God chooses what human nature discards and human prudence neglects, out of which he works his wonders and reveals himself to all souls who believe that that is where they will find him. That's where God works. The Holy Spirit has expanded their vision to see what everyone else has discarded as trash. And seeing is actually a great emphasis of Luke in this passage. I don't know if you caught that. He says that Peter and John look intently at the man and then encourage him to look back at them. This man has been dehumanized for decades. People have intentionally avoided seeing him, have intentionally avoided entering into his story, his grief, his pain, but not Peter and John. Peter and John, in the middle of their regular religious rhythm, are given a willingness to be interrupted by the Spirit. And they truly see this man. They look into his eyes. The windows to his soul, to his heart, they enter into his story. They humanize him in a profound way. This is the restoration of intimate love that we are all made for. You guys, the Holy Spirit expands our vision by teaching us to see those around us. We become people who look intently at our neighbors, regardless of who they are. We listen to their stories. We call them by their names. We see them as God does, brothers and sisters, beloved. No one is defined by their worst or their best or the way that they dress. They're defined by what God says. So Peter and John remind all of us to see people around us, which should prompt some pertinent questions for us. Who's the lame man in our lives? That is, who's the one in need of healing in our lives? Who's the one that needs to be seen in our lives? Maybe it's a friend or a family member for you. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a neighbor experiencing homelessness. Maybe it's a whole group of people, a classroom or a school or an office. Maybe it's someone you're not the biggest fan of. Who's in need of healing that you could start to see in your life? Where is the Holy Spirit trying to expand your vision? So the messengers, Peter and John, and the man in this story, they're showing us that the Holy Spirit is here to expand our vision, but the story doesn't stop there. This new vision actually leads them to a growth in expectations. They expect something different because of what the Holy Spirit is doing in them. They know what the light does with what the world sees as trash, and so they live with great expectations. We see this in the miracle and in the message that they proclaim or preach. First, in the miracle. Peter says this to the man, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. And you can almost imagine the awkward pause The next chapter, we learn that this guy has been struggling. He hasn't been able to walk for more than four decades. And now Peter strolls along and says, yeah, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. He's holding his hand out. He's like, what? Like, do you know this can't happen, right? He doesn't believe that this can happen. He's been begging. He doesn't believe that healing can come. And in classic Peter faction, Peter's like, come on, let's do this. He grabs his hand. He picks him up. And the man's able to walk. The text says that his ankles and his feet move into place, they're made strong. And he jumped up and began to walk. And the phrasing is really interesting here. I think this is a helpful point for us to see in this passage. Luke, the guy who wrote this text, he was a doctor or physician in the first century. And the way he writes this is using some of the best medical language of his day. He's doing something that we actually don't see of any other author in the New Testament. There's a scholar named G. Campbell Morgan who mentions this. He says this, these are peculiar technical words used of a medical man. 
The word that's translated feet here is only used by Luke in the New Testament, and it occurs nowhere else. It indicates his discrimination between the different parts of the human heel. And the phrase ankles, it's again a medical phrase to be found nowhere else in the New Testament. It's found in other medical language uh, in ancient Greek. The word jumping up describes the coming of something suddenly into socket, of something that was out of place, an articulation of a joint. This, then, is a very careful medical description of what happened in connection to this man. Luke is wanting to report this so that any rational thinking person, even a doctor, could see that this was medically verified, that this actually happened. This wasn't a magic trick. This wasn't some guy faking. This wasn't an actor that was planted. This wasn't some superstition from an ancient gullible people. Luke wants us to know that it really, truly, physically happened. And this miracle is only possible because Peter and John expect that God's going to show up. That's the only reason that this happens. They expect that God will show up in the middle of the brokenness of this man's life. They know that in the middle of a dying world, light and life is breaking forth, and so they expect God to heal. Friends, the Holy Spirit teaches us to expect the miraculous. It teaches us to expect healing. And I know that when I say that, there's some important nuances because there's some pain points when we talk about healing for us. Many of us in this room have prayed for healing for ourselves or for others, and it hasn't come. We've wondered if God is really present, if God is really active, if God's really listening at all. And so I think it's important. When we say, what, uh, when we, say we expect God to heal, what that means and what it doesn't mean. Expecting God to heal means remembering that healing is broad and multifaceted, not one size fits all. We have to remember that the miraculous is far more expansive than we often consider or give credit for. We often, for instance, think that the miraculous is only ever when some supernatural, physical, outward sign happens. That's the only time that something's really a miracle. But that's not actually a helpful understanding of the miraculous in the scriptures. That limited definition actually prevents us from experiencing and seeing what God is up to all the time. When we're only looking for the obvious and the outward physical healing, we miss the healing that God is doing in all sorts of other ways. You guys, when a woman forgives and reconciles with the men who murdered her family in apartheid, that's a miracle. That's the restoration of relationship that couldn't have happened other than the work of God in her life. When a decades-long addict is freed from their vice, that is a miracle. When those mired in hopelessness and depression and anxiety find a future hope in Christ, that is miraculous. It's healing. We need to remember that. The miracle is any time the brokenness in our lives and in our world is restored back to health. A miracle is any time the brokenness in our lives or in the world is restored back to health. There's a theologian named Jürgen Moltmann who writes about this. He says, The lordship of God, to which healings witness, restores creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, dehumanized, demonized, wounded. And I've got a couple stories that I think can tell this, because really, this needs to get into our lives if it's to matter at all, right? It can't just be theoretical. So I've got two stories that I want to tell you guys that illustrate this point. The first story is actually something that happened just this last week. Uh, there's a friend of mine who pastors a church in Texas. His name's Dan. Uh, we keep in touch over Twitter. There's benefits to social media at times. We keep in touch over Twitter. And that uh, Dan pastors a small missional church like this. And a couple months back, one of his board members came to him and the rest of the board and said, hey, 
I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which is one of the fastest moving and deadliest cancers in the human body. He announced this to their church family. They prayed from that day. They've continued to pray. They haven't heard a whole lot. And then just this last Sunday, a week ago, this board member showed up to church. He took the mic, and he said the oncologists can't find any cancer. It's gone, which doesn't happen. Pancreatic cancer doesn't go away. The doctors, when they gave him an initial prognosis, they said, yeah, we're going to try to like manage and extend your life as best as possible, but this thing will kill you. The surgeries are only meant to well, help extend life. They're not meant to cure anything. It was gone. And the doctors told him, we've never seen this in our decades of experience, never seen it once. And in the note, in the note that they wrote to describe what had happened, they called it spontaneous metabolic resolution. Amen. That, is, that is the 21st century way of saying miracle. Spontaneous metabolic resolution. Physical miracles happen, friends. And it is worth praying for. But I have a second story. It's of a man named Edward J. Levitt II. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in the fall of 2010. And immediately, his church community surrounded him, like this board member at this church, surrounded him with prayer and prayed for him for months. And then months later, Edward J. Levitt died of pancreatic cancer. That was my dad. I watched him die. And as I've reflected and wrestled and prayed about the pain and the hardship in my dad's story and my family's story, I've also come to a striking realization that just because Edward Levitt wasn't healed of his disease then doesn't mean that God wasn't performing the miraculous and healing all around him when he was sick. There are relationships that have been restored from my dad's sickness that never would have without a sickness. The Spirit was at work in the middle of relationships. There's been families who have come together because of his sickness. Miraculous healing of relationships has happened. My dad's sickness sparked vocational stirring in me and my brother that never would have happened otherwise. Life has come even in the midst of death. You guys, God's miraculous healing is any time that the good creation is put back in place, is restored to the way that it ought to be. And that healing is at work in countless ways that we often fail to see because we're looking for the big or the grand, because we're looking for the physical and the outward. And this, by the way, it doesn't mean that we don't grieve when death comes. It doesn't mean that death doesn't hit us in the same way it does. We should lament it because that's not the way things should be. But we should also remember that God's healing isn't one size fits all. God's healing is constantly happening, and we want to become people who expectantly seek it who expand our vision and grow in our expectation of what God will do in our lives and in the world around us. So the miracle here, it's teaching us to grow in our expectations of God to heal. But our expectations also grow because of one final part of this passage, and this is the final part that gives me hope for my dad who passed away. It's the message behind the miracle. See, Peter, when he heals the man, he says, it happens in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And when we say in the name of, even in the church, we often miss the power that that would have carried in the ancient world. We close our prayers by saying in the name of Jesus, right? And we just kind of do it as like a formal thing. In the ancient world, it was about the power that that name carried. To say someone's name was to denote their authority. It was to denote their character and denote their purpose or significance, the big story behind their name. So in performing this healing, Peter is locating it in a larger story and power beyond the healing itself. 
He's saying this healing is actually pointing beyond itself to something bigger. That it's in the power of the name of Jesus that this happens. And that power is what counts here, now, and everywhere forever. When we read about this miraculous healing, we're supposed to see it pointing forward to an ultimate reality that will come for all things and all people. That's what miracles are. And we actually get a hint of that ultimate reality. The response of man, he stands up, he walks, and then it says he leaps in the temple. And anyone in first century Judaism who was a diligent listener to scripture, that would spark something in their mind. It would make them think of a passage in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, it talks about what God is going to ultimately do at the end of all things. Isaiah 35, it says this. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be opened, unstopped, and then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. You see what Peter's doing here? The whole point of this miracle is to proclaim that what God is going to do, to bring life and restoration to all things, that that's come. It's happening now in our midst. This man is a sign of what God is doing now and into the future. That's what Peter says to the crowd that gathers after this miracle. He preaches a sermon and says, yeah, this is what God's up to. You can experience this sort of healing now and forever. That's the whole point of miracles. Miracles aren't supposed to be some impressive show of power, at least not alone. They're always supposed to be pointing us like an arrow to God's healing and restoration of all things and all people. That's why Jesus doesn't come around and just do random shows of power in his ministry. You ever think about that? Jesus could have come and said, hey, guys, watch this, and he gets up and flies around, right? He could have. He could have said, hey, guys, check this out. I can see what's through that wall over there, right? He doesn't show up and just kind of give naked superpower sort of miracles. Why? Because miracles aren't just about shows of power. They're about indicating what God is doing now and forever. They're about pointing us to the end of human suffering, to the end of grief, to the end of pain and loss and mourning and death. It's a signpost. It's an arrow pointing forward. That's why every one of the miracles has to do with human suffering or pain or loss. That's the point of New Testament miracles. They're always pointing us forward. And it's getting us caught up in the expectation that no matter how dark or how painful or how broken the circumstance might be, Christ is bringing true lasting life. You can guarantee it because look at this. And another quick point, you guys. Miracles are also a reminder to us that God is no happier with the current state of the world than any of us are. God is no happier with the brokenness in the world today. The miracle is God breaking in and saying, that's not the way it's going to be now or forever. God didn't invent brokenness. God didn't invent pain. Look at Genesis 1 and 2. It's a perfect, flourishing world in reality, free of pain and sin and death. And then we got in and mucked it all up. We turned away from unity with God, and then all of that ugliness comes in, injustice and poverty and death and pain. They explode into existence when we stop living with the unity that we're made for. That means that whenever we see God miraculously heal things, whenever we see an elder at a church get miraculously healed, whenever we see a lame man walk, it's a reminder of God's ultimate character, who God is and what God is doing. And it points forward to what he's going to ultimately do at the end. My dad will eventually walk and leap and run in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the promise. We have that hope. And every time we see the miraculous in our lives, it's pointing forward to that ultimate hope. That should grow our expectations. We should expect that God can bring life in all circumstances, wherever we are. 
We should expect that the trash doesn't have the last word, but that the light shining through it does. I want to close our time with a quote. It's from the book, uh, The Brothers Karamazov. And uh, the character that I'm going to quote here, his name's Ivan. He starts in the book as an an avowed atheist, like anti-God in every way. But more and more, he's compelled by the story of Jesus. His expectations and his vision expand and grow. And eventually, at the end of the book, this is what he says. I believe that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, and for all the blood that they've shed. That's the good news that miracles point to, friends. That's the good news that we get to go out into a broken world and proclaim. We get to be people who have expanded vision. What the world discards and says can't be healed, we say, no, God can work in that. And then we expect God to do it. In our offices, in our neighborhoods, in our relationships, we expect God to show up and to bring healing and life far beyond what we could have expected or imagined. We are vehicles of this message. We are messengers of the kingdom, friends. And so every single one of you leaves this room ready to invite people to walk, to leap, and to rejoice at the good news that Jesus Christ of Nazareth sits on the that he rules over all things and he, bring, he is bringing life and restoration to all things. Amen? Let's pray.